You're listening to the Podcast Network. Listen. Learn. Evolve. Welcome to the second episode of our Napoleon 101 podcast. Welcome back, David Markham. Well, I'm pleased to be here as always, Cameron. Good to hear your voice again. It's good to talk to you. I've been looking forward to this, as I know you have. Now, we don't have much time. Oh, absolutely. We've got a lot to get through, but uh, first of all, I'd just like to thank everybody who sent positive feedback on the first episode. Glad uh, that they enjoyed it. And now we get into the real Napoleon story. The first episode was really just an overview, an introduction about why we're obsessed with Napoleon. Now we're going to get into the, the meat of the story as it is. And, and, and let Cameron, let, let me thank all those people also for their, their kind remarks. It's, it's good to know people out there are, are listening to us and, and care enough to, uh, to leave some feedback. Absolutely. And good to know that uh, people are interested in Napoleon. Not that there was ever really any doubt about that. I was going to say, how, how could that be possibly a question? Absolutely. Uh, now, let's, let's get stuck in it. We're going to start in the uh, place of Napoleon's birth, uh, the island of Corsica, just off the coast of the Côte d'Azur in France, kind of nestled there in the armpit of the... Is that the Mediterranean? I don't even know. My geography is not that great. What, what's the sea that Corsica's in? You know that is the that is the Mediterranean. I don't know that the people of Corsica and Elba and so on would would appreciate uh, their region being described as the armpit of of the Mediterranean. But it does uh, uh, fall both off the coast of uh, France and and of Italy uh, because it's it's in that area where Italy goes up and then the the coastline swings to the west and and you it becomes France. It's almost, I've got a map here in front of me, actually, it's almost equidistant between the coasts of France and Italy as they are today. But, of course, back in 1769 when Napoleon was born, we didn't have uh, France and Italy as we have them today. The, the uh, political geography of Europe was slightly different. We didn't have a unified Italy. Well, it was it was very different. Uh, you had a collection of republics, kingdoms. Uh, you had the papal states, which were governed by the pope, which was more or less the the, the center section of of the 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 boot of of Italy. Uh, uh, Corsica was actually controlled by the Republic of Genoa, uh, and hence their language, the Corsican official language, was not French as you might expect, but in fact it was Italian. Now, this was the, the political environment that Napoleon was born into. His father, Carlo, was, as we said in the first show, a man of some minor nobility. I think their bloodline actually goes back to Florence, doesn't it, in the, the uh, Renaissance period? 
Yeah, their bloodline goes back uh, pretty far, and of course it is that bloodline, uh, however minor the nobility may have been, that will ultimately serve Napoleon uh, quite well when it comes to getting his education, and we'll talk more about that later. Uh, Paoli was was really what we would, uh, excuse me, Carlo was really what we would call uh, a middle-class lawyer, uh, with some uh, pretensions, I might add, but nevertheless, he... Uh, he, he had a, a modest uh, law practice, and uh, they lived a relatively uh, modest middle-class life. If you, if you look at uh, pictures today or go to Corsica and see the uh, Bonaparte uh, family home, you, you would think they had great wealth because it's really quite a large building. But in fact, in the early days, uh, they only owned uh, one or two floors, uh, really only one floor of that uh, uh, house. And over the years, they were able to, to gain control of the entire uh, building. Uh, so they were fairly uh, modest, but uh, uh, Carlo was, was ambitious and Carlo was uh, devoted to uh, the struggle for independence. Uh, that was uh, going on. Uh, Genoa had had uh, controlled Corsica really for uh, quite uh, some time uh, since the uh, 13th century, and the Corsicans were not particularly pleased about it. And by 1755 or so, they had uh, managed to force the Genoese uh, governors from the island. Uh, but unfortunately for the Corsicans, uh, the Genoese, uh, in fact, transferred uh, uh, control to uh, France, uh, King Louis XV. Uh, and in, in 1768, just a year before Napoleon was born, uh, Genoa sold Corsica to uh, Louis XV, and uh, French so- soldiers moved in, and the fight now for independence was not against the Genoese, but rather against the French. And into this fairly uh, you know a complex political environment was born young napoleon bonaparte now obviously we we mentioned paoli briefly before pasquale paoli had been a revolutionary fighting against the genoese and when the french landed in 1768 he kind of went into exile and carlo napoleon's father had been closely tied to the revolutionary cause had was a friend and a and a colleague of paoli's and this kind of set i guess the tone for the bonapartes in corsica and for napoleon's future relationship well, with paoli well he uh he he went into exile you say paoli went into, paoli went into exile but that was only uh, after uh, Paoli had been uh, defeated uh, by, militarily uh, by Lieutenant General Comte de Vaux. The uh, British had promised uh, help to Paoli. They were delighted to uh, step in and create difficulties, but uh, promises uh, were one thing and, and keeping promises were another. And ultimately, uh, the, the, the Corsican uh, movement was, was defeated. Uh, Paoli uh, escapes with a handful of his friends to London on a British ship. ship. Uh, Lieutenant General uh, DeVoe offers a amnesty to those people who had fought against the French, and almost everybody on Corsica accepted that amnesty, including, of course, uh, Carlo Bonaparte, whose uh, young wife, Letizia, was uh, pregnant, 
and he really was glad probably to see all of this uh, stuff come to an end. And it probably served as a, 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 a an important message to Napoleon later, of course, in, in life. He could look back at, at Carlo's wisdom and practicality at recognizing when it was time to fight and when it was time to cut your losses. Uh, and uh, I think Napoleon probably made use of that. So into this, Napoleon was born, and uh, without spending a lot of time on his early years, because that's not really the exciting part, apart from providing some context and some background, I think, he lives, by uh, the sounds of it, a, a fairly good life, enjoys the life in uh, Ajaxio and Corsica, until he gets to about the age of nine, when he is fortunate enough, in a lot of ways, to be accepted into military boarding school. Now, this had a lot to do with Carlo's political connections, didn't it? Well, yes, it had a lot to do with Carlo's political connections. Uh, Carlo had embraced uh, the French and had become uh, uh, friends with the governor, uh, Comte de Morbeuf. It also had a lot to do, I I suspect, with Napoleon's mother, uh, Leticia, who was a very strong woman, also a a very uh, young and, and beautiful woman. And uh, she had married uh, Carlo at, at age 14, and they had a number of children. And Governor Marboff, who was 40 years older than she was, and, and I personally don't believe there was ever anything uh, inappropriate in the relationship, but the, the governor was quite taken with her. And they would spend time uh, walking publicly in, 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 in the city parks and so on. Uh, no hanky-panky as far as I'm concerned. But nevertheless, uh, the Count uh, de Marboff, became rather attached to the Bonaparte family and anxious to help in any way that he could. And so he encouraged Carlo to secure the the proof, the, the documentary proof that was necessary to show that his lineage, his nobility went back, I think it was 200 years it had to go, so that, that uh, Carlo could send his children to a French school on, ironically, royal scholarships given by Louis XVI. And that's exactly what ultimately happens. Uh, the the uh, documents uh, come through. And Napoleon is uh, sent to Atun in France uh, for a period of time, about three months, waiting for final confirmation. Uh, while he's there, he learns to uh, speak French. The, the poor guy could barely speak a word of French. He, he, he picks up the language in three months. He's really quite fluent. His heavy Corsican accent really sets him apart from all of the other students. Now, the other students, you have to remember, are the sons of quote-unquote, pure French nobility. They are sons of uh, counts and so forth in France, and they look down their noses at this uh, Corsican who can barely speak French. Uh, the, 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 the French aristocracy consider Corsicans just this side of barbarians, uh, and they would have looked down on him anyway, but here he is, he's frail, he can't speak French very well, he has this thick accent, which really sets him apart. Uh, so he has kind of a tough time of it with his uh, uh, fellow classmates. He does manage to make a few good friends while he's in school, but to a very large extent, he's a loner because he is so different than the other students. 
and he has an Italian name. At this stage, he's known as Napoleone Buonaparte, and his family is, you know, suffering from financial difficulties. So even though they are of nobility, as we said before, they're not very well off. And uh, so he, he is dressed in clothes that are a little bit threadbare. He turns up at – I mean, just the fact of being sent to military college, boarding school on a different – country, in a different country from the rest of your family at the age of nine, has got to be traumatic enough for any kid. Well, well, sure it is. Uh, and even at, at the ripe old age of 12, in 1781, for example, he, he writes his father a letter asking to for either more money or let me get out of this place because it's getting to be a problem. He says, I am tired of exhibiting indigence and seeing the smiles of insolent scholars who were superior to me by reason of their fortune. Uh, he's poor, they're rich. We all know uh, that there's a divide between the rich and poor uh, in any society. And in the small society of a French military academy, that divide is enormous. But one of the things that does to him in that sort of adversity, he basically knuckles down, is a bit of a loner, has one or two close friends, but is pretty much a bit of a loner, and studies. He reads a lot. He studies military history. He studies history in general, going back to Alexander and the Caesars and all of the classics. Well, he studies history. He becomes extremely good at mathematics. Uh, I also believe that his experience in, in being poor and the discrimination he faces uh, makes him more egalitarian and may very well be a factor in why he was so interested in promoting equality later on when he uh, takes power. Uh, but there's no question this, this is a major element of, of his uh, upbringing and, 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 and influence in the way he develops. Uh, he, he, he meets a number of, of good people, including, of course, uh, Louis Antoine uh, Borian, who becomes his secretary and, and lifelong friend, uh, uh, Junot, Andrashi Junot, and, and some others. That's right. Some of those relationships that would last him for the rest of his life were forged in those early years. That's right. Now, he basically graduates um, and is very successful, is looked upon by his teachers in their later recollections and in some of the notes from the time as being a bit of a loner, a bit stubborn, very um, arrogant in his uh, own opinion and self-belief, but you know, uh, educationally very astute, very adept, and consequently gets selected uh, to uh, become uh, in a fairly privileged position in the French military when he graduates? Well, he graduates at the ripe old age of, of 16 as a second lieutenant in the Royal Artillery. Uh, math and geometry were his two strongest subjects in school. Math and geometry are, are critical elements to being uh, good in the artillery, uh, and so naturally he he uh, he goes into that branch. Interestingly enough, he is able to graduate from the military school of Paris in one year, 
the normal time is two years. So his detractors sometimes say, well, he only ranked 42nd out of 58 of the young men who, who graduated that year. But the others had been there for two years and he was there for only one. So he really was, was quite, uh, uh, successful. And he, he moves to the south of France in the Lafayre Regiment at Valence, uh, which is not that far from uh, Corsica as it happens. And he, uh, he became a gunner. He was a lieutenant in, in an artillery group, and he spent his money on books, uh, reading a lot of history, uh, some uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau uh, and, and other things, but he read quite a bit. He would he would write about how other people were spending money on this, that, and the other thing. He only looked forward to spending his money uh, on, on various books. And, and well, he, he began, he began to write a book at that point too. He began to do some preliminary work on a history of Corsica, a project which he would stay at for a number of years, although I don't think he ever actually finished it. That's right. And, and so during those years after he graduated and was uh, working, as you said, as a second lieutenant, uh, something happened in France in 1789. A little thing called the revolution happened. <laughs> And yes. he, he wasn't actually in Paris at the time when the Bastille was stormed on the 14th of July, 1789. But he took a great interest in it. Now, obviously, here he is. He's gone to military college on a royal scholarship. He's a second lieutenant in the royal military. And the revolution breaks out. Now, you would imagine, it would be easy to imagine that he, again, coming from nobility, be it minor or, or not, it would be very easy to be conflicted with which side he should be taking. Should he be protecting the king and taking the side of the nobility, or should he be taking the side of the, quote-unquote, patriots, the revolutionaries? So what does he do? Well, he very soon uh, begins to support the, the, the revolution. He had seen the the downside of the aristocracy and how it had treated him and how it it treated others he was very well aware of the economic divide in France between the the wealthy and and the poor uh and he also was aware of the fact that it became rather unsafe to be a a, an officer, a, a member of the nobility, however minor, and to not support the revolution. So you you, you put all of this uh, together, and and in fact you have Napoleon, uh, and I think genuinely, not just out of self-preservation, genuinely uh, believing in the ideals of the French Revolution. Because remember, uh, Cameron, however one may feel about the ultimate direction that the revolution took, the initial ideals of the revolution uh, were were very high, uh, very noble, no pun intended, uh, and by the way, included the king. I mean, the initial idea of the revolution of 1789 was not to get rid of the king, never mind execute him, uh, but to include the, the, the king as, as something of a constitutional monarch. And we obviously don't have time to go into the background behind the French Revolution, but Obviously, it was uh, driven as much by the economics of France as anything else. They had the three estates meeting, the three estates being the the, 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 the king, the nobility, and the, uh, the, the church, none of whom paid taxes. 
Well, you had the you know the three estates were the 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 nobility. The king was sort of above it all, but you had the nobility, all those nobles running around with lots of money, and they paid essentially no taxes. Then you had the clergy, the, the church officials, uh, ranging from the very poor cures or parish priests all the way up to the fabulously wealthy archbishops, uh, who, who many of whom lived at Versailles with the king. Uh, and then you had the third estate, which was everybody else, ranging from let's say a doctor who might make some decent money or a tax collector to the unbelievably poor uh, peasantry in the countryside and the sans-culotte, the the, uh, urban workers who became the sort of driving engine, the radical engine of the French Revolution. And you're absolutely right. It essentially was a revolution of desperation. Uh, people were extremely tired and, and downtrodden by the economic system, and, and even many of the nobles uh, understood that something had to be done to change things. Unfortunately for the nobles, uh, they weren't able to effectuate change quickly enough to avoid a, an outright revolution. That's right. So the revolution happens... It's happening with or without Napoleon. Very quickly, as you say, he decides that he's on the side of the principles of the revolution. Now, during this whole period of turmoil in France, he does something which today still amazes me. He goes back to Corsica in 1791 and starts fighting for Corsican independence of France. He's, he's, you know, very much, uh, you know, benefited from his royal education. He's uh, worked for the king, but in the fever of the revolution and the spirit of independence, he sees his opportunity for Corsica, his homeland, to break free. Goes back and tries to, uh, Paoli comes back to the country and he spends pretty much the next couple of years moving between Corsica, taking leave from the military where he's a member of the French army, going to Corsica and fighting as a Corsican revolutionary. And then going back when his leave runs out and then replying for more leave and going back to Corsica, it's, it's a fabulous turn of events. Well, it is amazing. Uh, I was in the military many years ago uh, during the Vietnam conflict, and, and I can assure you that getting a leave of absence, uh, absence on the order that Napoleon did routinely is unheard of in the modern military. But, of course, uh, this is the 18th century, and 18th century military life in France was quite different than than uh, 20th century or 21st century military life in, 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 in the United States or, or, I suspect, in Australia or the U.K. or anyplace else. Uh, so he was able to, to get away with this, and, and he was really – uh, interestingly enough, uh, working to make Corsica uh, uh, part of the, the French Revolution and, and, and make it a full-fledged uh, French territory uh, with uh, uh, ties to the revolution. And at first, our old friend Paoli uh, seemed to be uh, going in that direction, but Paoli soon uh, becomes disillusioned with the uh, French Revolution and becomes a royalist, uh, supporting a return of the monarchy. And uh, the two of them do not get along well. Napoleon wants nothing to do with that. Uh, we don't have time to get into the details. And let me tell you, it's, it's Byzantine, uh, the kind of, of things that, uh, that, that went on. But in essence, they have a split 
Napoleon is uh, at one point actually forced by circumstances to fire on Corsican citizens, and 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 you know there's basically uh, a no love loss between him and Paoli and an awful lot of Paoli supporters. And so in May of 1792, uh, Napoleon. Uh, beats a hasty retreat along with his uh, entire family and heads uh, uh, off to uh, uh, France. That's right. So they become refugees. They basically leave Corsica with very little money, very little possessions. The entire family are uprooted from the place where they've lived for generations. Yeah, and that's that's right. And let me correct myself. I gave you the wrong date. That was June of 1793 that they uh, that they beat their hasty retreat. He he came and went from Corsica so often that it's easy for me to forget now which which date was which. But it was in June of 93 that uh, he 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 went to France and he was as you say penniless. He didn't have any possessions, but the French government uh, liked him. Uh, he still had his military career. Uh, his reputation was one uh, who had uh, supported the, the revolution against royalist factions. Uh, uh, he had uh, certainly uh, uh, some, some very good uh, friends that he had uh, managed to, to uh, keep in, in touch with, uh, uh, Corsican uh, uh, folks. Uh, people such as Antonio uh, Salasetti, who was actually the representative of the French Revolutionary Government, uh, who had been in Corsica, and it was Salasetti who gave a glowing report back in Paris on on how this great revolutionary supporter, Napoleone Bonaparte, had been uh, uh, such a good friend of the revolutionary government. Uh, and Salasetti really is is the first person in, in Paris to really uh, promote Napoleon uh, to the revolutionary government, but he will not be the last. That's right. And at this time in France, we're at the period of the revolution where they've got a new government, the Committee of Public Safety. Uh, it's made up of 12 members, mainly middle-class lawyers, the most influential being the infamous, <laughs> from a historical perspective, Maximilien Robespierre. And it was a very, very turbulent time. The revolution had basically gone off the rails. Uh, they were moving into the reign of terror. It was a dreadful part of the revolution, which, as you said, started with extremely high ideals, still had, I guess, very high ideals at the core, but was being run by a group of fairly corrupt individuals who had kind of gone power mad in the way we look at it in retrospect today well we we, we do and and there's no question that there was uh, uh, there were problems with the uh, revolution it had become far more radical the committee of public safety uh, whether or not they were Bloodthirsty, whether or not you, 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 you cannot justify anything they did. Well, that's, that's arguable. Uh, first of all, the number of people killed by the guillotine is, is oftentimes overstated. Uh, but that said, yes, the, the revolution turned on itself. It became, uh, obsessed with purity. If you weren't a pure revolutionary, uh, then you were, uh, against them and, and, and susceptible to, to being sent to the national razor, as the guillotine was called. Who would decide if you were acceptable? Well, as you say, the Committee of Public Safety headed by, uh, uh, Robespierre. However, it also has to be said that at least for a while, 
This all worked to Napoleon's advantage, and it worked to his advantage in at least two ways that come to mind. First of all, a lot of the officers in the military uh, were nobles. In fact, virtually all officers in the royal military were nobles. Uh, when the revolution begins to progress, uh, many of those nobles flee the country. Others uh, uh, have a date with the National Razor, uh, and in either uh, case, uh, there are, shall we say, uh, with a definite pun intended, a number of vacancies at the top. Uh, when you have an awful lot of openings uh, in the officer corps, it is easier for uh, a young lieutenant, then captain, then major, and so on to, to advance. Uh, the second thing is that Napoleon meets and is able to really uh, use a number of connections. Uh, for example, uh, Augustine Robespierre is one of the most important people in Napoleon's uh, uh, career development. He is uh, none other than the brother of Maximilian Robespierre. Uh, and Augustine is, is assigned to the region uh, where Napoleon is. They become friends, particularly after uh, Napoleon writes a little, little short story we'll probably talk about. Uh, and Augustine is in a position uh, to promote Napoleon's uh, career, and does so. When we talk about Toulon later, uh, we'll find that it is Augustine and Freron and Salicetti who are responsible for giving Napoleon some of the chances that he gets uh, that lead to uh, the, the rather fabulous career he ends up having. That's right. But before we get to Toulon, he is stationed uh, just outside of the town of Avignon, under the command of General Carteau. Now, in Avignon, the National Guardsmen from Marseille had seized it. There was uh, basically civil war going on there at the time. And Napoleon took part in an attack on uh, Avignon, on the National Guardsmen. So there was he was basically thrust into the middle of a uh, war between Frenchmen, one group of Frenchmen fighting another group of Frenchmen. And it was... Uh, very bloodthirsty war. A lot of National Guardsmen were killed by his troops. A lot of his troops were killed. There were civilians uh, murdered and killed in the, in the whole process. Collateral damage, I guess, as we would say today. <laughs> and the evidence is that Napoleon was deeply upset by this experience of civil war. I mean, he's come back into France, having you know sort of left with the ideals of the revolution in mind, had a bad experience in civil war and revolution in Corsica, come back to France, had another bad experience in civil war, and as you say, then writes a, a Socratic dialogue, the short story called Le Super de Beaucaire, The Supper at Beaucaire, which I've never been able to get a full copy of to read. Have you read a translation of it? Yes, you, there is a translation available in paperback, uh, relatively recent within the last 10, 15 years, I think, and I can, I can send you the information. Uh, it's, it's a very short story, uh, and you're, you're absolutely right. It is a reaction to Napoleon's horror at the nature of civil war. Anyone who studies military history and the history of war will tell you there's, there's no worse war, there's no more vicious and no more hurtful a war than a civil war, certainly uh, and, and those of us in the United States who studied the, our civil war understand that. And Napoleon saw it up close and personal twice, on, once on Corsica and, and once uh, in France. And, and he, he absolutely hated it. And he became convinced that France had to unite uh, behind the revolutionary government. And that is, in essence, 
what the uh, Suffer de Bocure is. Uh, it's simply a conversation of, of some people sitting around a, a dinner table having supper, uh, and they're talking about the nature of, of politics and uh, the revolution. And the character who is Napoleon is, is arguing uh, for unity. We must all come together. We must all remember we are Frenchmen first. We, we must support the revolution. Well, surprise, surprise, when this uh, little short story uh, falls into the hands of the revolutionary representatives on mission, as people like Ferron and Augustine Robespierre uh, were known, uh, they love it. Here's this young Corsican military officer writing a story in support of their glorious revolution. Needless to say, they have it uh, uh, copied, uh, distributed. Uh, Napoleon's uh, name is is works its way up in the ranks, as it were. Uh, those people who have power to to do good things for him are told about him, and uh, it really is a good step forward uh, for his uh, career, as long as the revolutionary government maintains its power. That's right. But he's still disgusted with everything that he's seen. And as a consequence of that, he writes to the war office asking to be posted to the Army of the Rhine. He wants to get away from the Civil War. Let me go fight our real enemies. I don't want to be fighting Frenchmen. I want to go, let me go fight the Germans. I'll fight the Austrians and the Prussians, but I don't want to have to kill more Frenchmen. But before that happens, he happens to be with an ammunition convoy traveling to Nice and comes upon the region of Toulon where he runs into Salicetti, one of the government commissioners in that area. Now, Salicetti's heard of him, knows him from the, their uh, previous lives, and appoints uh, Napoleon to go and work uh, with the army that's, again, run by General Carteau down in the Toulon area. Now, this is – Toulon is, I guess, becomes Napoleon's first – Victory. This is where he first starts to make his name from a military perspective. Well, that's absolutely correct, and you you have to understand a couple of things. Uh, first of all, uh, why Toulon? Well, Toulon was one of those cities in France that had not liked the French Revolution, had not supported the the lofty goals of the revolution, and certainly did not like Augustine Robespierre and Maximilien Robespierre. And so they had actually, the city fathers, had invited the British fleet to come into the harbor uh, and, and to land British Marines and essentially to take control of this important port city down on the Mediterranean coast uh, until such time as the French uh, came to their senses and restored a monarchy. Well, if you're the French government, you're not going to allow a major city in your country to to be guilty of treason by going against the legitimate government of your country uh, and get away with it. And so they sent the army down there uh, to try to dislodge the British, uh, but the army was having no success. Uh, they were taking a rather stodgy approach to the whole thing. And uh, nothing much had been going on. Uh, there were 18,000 British troops there uh, against, uh, I'm not sure how many 
thousand uh, French troops had, were, were stationed there. And he, he stops off on his way. He's not going to Toulon deliberately, as you say. He's in a rather mundane ammunition convoy. Uh, but he stops off to visit some of his uh, uh, friends, uh, and uh, including uh, Salicetti. And Salicetti, who had just got word that the captain of artillery had been uh, uh, done in, uh, offers Napoleon the chance to take over. And so Napoleon said, let's see, I can continue in obscurity or I can have a chance to become a hero by driving out the hated British. Uh, well, you know, that was a, a pretty easy choice. I, I doubt that he took a lot of time thinking about it. I'm, I'm guessing the words were barely out of Salicetti's mouth before he said we. Uh, and, uh, and in fact, uh, uh, Napoleon really had everything going for him. He had political backing, Salicetti and, 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 and his cronies. Uh, he was brilliant. He was put into a situation where artillery was going to be, uh, a major issue, but he had a problem. And it was a very, very big problem, uh, General Jean Carteau. Carteau had been a painter before he had been made a general. Uh, and he, he had this idea that, well, we'll lead a frontal assault on this, uh, uh city, a walled city, well fortified against 18,000 crack British Marines. Not a good idea. Uh, he had no clue about artillery, didn't know a thing about it. And Napoleon, uh, discovers soon that the real problem initially is not going to be the uh, British, but it's going to be the French general. So he writes this letter to the Committee of Public Safety on the 25th of October of 1793. And if you'll forgive me, I want to read it to you because it really says a lot about Napoleon. And not the whole letter. But it says, I have had to struggle against ignorance and the passions it gives rise to. The first step I propose to you is to send to command the artillery, an artillery general who can, if only by his rank, demand respect and deal with a crowd of fools on the staff with whom one has constantly to argue and lay down the law in order to overcome their prejudices and make them take action which theory and practice alike have shown to be axiomatic to any trained officer of this corps. Well, let's let's make sure we understand, uh, Cameron, what, what, what we have here. This guy is saying, uh, first of all, I'm, the people I'm dealing with are ignorant. They don't know what they're dealing with. Uh, the, the, the staff here, my, my superior officers, they're, they're a bunch of fools. They're a bunch of idiots. Moreover, I have to lay the law down to them uh, to tell them what really is up, and even that doesn't work. Well, again, I can only draw on my own military experience. Uh, I cannot imagine uh, writing a letter to to the general staff somewhere uh, talking about what an idiot my commanding officer and his staff uh, were. Uh, that's a very risky kind of thing to do. Uh, and it was... Uh, it, it, it says a lot about Napoleon. Napoleon knew what had to be done, and he was going to take the gamble. He was going to take the risk. Now, sure, he he had his uh, political connections, uh, but even so, uh, that's something very, very few people would have done. But it works. Ultimately, General Jacques uh, Dugomier uh, is uh, is sent to take uh, charge of the army uh, at Toulon. 
And uh, before before Dugamier comes along, they send the general Jean Dutier, uh, who was the brother of Napoleon's former commander, uh, and who basically is going to leave things in Napoleon's hands. So in a short period of time, Napoleon has two generals who are willing to let him pretty much run uh, the show. And uh, it's not very long before uh, Napoleon uses his cannon effectively. Uh, he dominates the heights, uh, takes over uh, Little Gibraltar, which is uh, one of the small forts that overlooks the heights uh, over Toulon, uh, and uses that to, to gain control of two other fortifications. Uh, and now the, the, uh, the French... Uh, army and the artillery are looking down from the high ground onto the harbor. And now the whole system situation changes. Uh, they are, uh, being fired on from on high. He's firing a hot shot, which is red hot cannonballs that, that will burn quickly through, uh, the decks of, uh, ships and, and down into the, where the gunpowder is stored. Uh, the, the British, and by the way, there were quite a few Spanish, uh, uh, sailors and soldiers as well, uh, very soon withdraw, uh, uh, taking, of course, the Marines with them, uh, but also taking an awful lot of the uh, French traders. Uh, they they sink the some of the sh- French ships in the harbor that they couldn't uh, uh, get rid of, uh, and uh, Toulon quickly falls to the French army. Now that all sounds pretty good. Unfortunately, the French army uh, decides that they're going to take a little revenge. And it's not entirely unexpected, I suppose. Uh, they're going to take a little uh, uh, revenge in Toulon, and there's a lot of uh, bloodshed. A lot of people are are being executed, uh, sometimes a few hundred at a time. Uh, of course, the worst offenders, the real traitors, had, had escaped with the, the British fleet. But that notwithstanding, uh, Napoleon has nothing to do with any of that. He he does his best to to uh, prevent it, but he he's 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 only a uh, a major, I guess, at that point. There's really nothing much that he can do to, to prevent the bloodshed. Uh, and, uh, you know, but eventually things die down. Uh, his superiors have nothing but accolades for him. And he is at the ripe old age of 24, uh, made a brigadier general a, in the United States, a one star general. Uh, that is a fabulous rise to uh, rank to be a general at age 24. That's right. And there's a, there's a couple of stories from the Battle of Toulon that I like that start to sketch out some details of Napoleon. Uh, when he's preparing his cannon, he has a young sergeant beside him, Junot, who goes on to be a lifelong sort of uh, general marshal of Napoleon's army. Well, they're standing there when a uh, an English shell from one of the English cannons lands very close to their battery, nearly killing Junot, but uh, knocks all his dirt up into the air, which covers a piece of paper that Napoleon, uh, not that Junot, was writing on with ink. Junot doesn't flinch, and he just says, "Good, I shan't need to sand the ink." <laughs> that's that's always, right. It's always a great, you know, whether it's true or not, it's a great anecdote of Junot's gallantry and Napoleon like that because one of the things that really set him aside from the rest of the generals, not only in the French army but in the rest of European armies, was he was always at the point of the, the, the pointy end of the army. He was always 
put particularly in the early days, always putting himself in the firing line, leading right out in front, wasn't scared of danger, had a philosophy that, well, if your number's up, your number's up. Believed in fate and destiny and such things. So he, he well, that's like Janot's comment a lot. Oh, he, he certainly did, and Janot returns the favor. He he writes a letter, Janot does, to, to his father, saying, Napoleon is one of those men of whom nature is sparing, and whom she does not throw upon the earth, but with centuries between them. Uh, I mean, that's pretty high praise, and, and Janot and Napoleon will, will stay together as long as, uh, as Janot lives. That's right. The other letter that I like from that time, de Gommier, who was his uh, uh, commanding officer in that particular battle, after the battle writes a letter to the Minister of War saying, I have no words to describe Bonaparte's merit, much technical skill, an equal degree of intelligence and too much gallantry. There you have a poor sketch of this rare officer. So as you say, he, he makes a mark on everyone who sees him in action. It's his plan that basically saves the day after several failed attempts by incompetent generals. And he pretty much becomes noticed by the Committee for Public Safety, by all of the head of the military. It's it's a sizable victory. There are 18,000 British troops in Toulon ready to take back France for the Bourbons and reinstate the Bourbon uh, royal family. So it, it, without any sense of exaggeration, winning that battle really did uh, save the revolution and it was all due to Napoleon's cunning tactics and strategy and his appreciation of what it would take to uh, win the day. So it, it's a major moment in his career. It certainly is. Well, with that, I think we should end today's episode i think uh we, we the next major milestone is the battle of that's become known as the battle of thermidor which appears in july 1794 which is the other major turning point in building his reputation but i suspect that's going to be a long one it could very well be. We, we'll leave Napoleon now really in pretty good shape. He uh, he gets a, a relatively mundane position of inspector of coastal defenses. Uh, he is uh, able to, to bring his family uh, to live uh, near uh, Antibes. Uh, which, by the way, in our next episode will, will, turn, will turn out to be a fortuitous decision, uh, things appear to be in pretty good shape. Uh, there's still a lot of strange politics going on. His, his career, he's, he's a general. He has a job that isn't necessarily going to lead to a lot of advancement, but at 24, he's a general, and he can't complain. And so uh, as the sun sets on today's episode, uh, Napoleon is doing pretty doggone good for a young man of 24. Thank you, David. Until next episode, may you have uh, good health, good times, and I will speak to you in a couple of weeks. It sounds good, my friend. We'll talk to you then.
Real power can't be given. It must be taken.